Well, that was an appropriate song to have sung as we turn back to the book of Philippians this morning where we will be confronted with the opposite of grace, and that is legalism. We're just about halfway through our study of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, and today we're coming to chapter 3, which uh, for many believers is their favorite chapter in this letter. I know it's my favorite chapter in this letter. It might be your favorite chapter uh, in this letter. And uh, because of the significance of this of this chapter, I want to read the entire thing as we begin before we start breaking it down so that we don't miss Paul's flow of thought here. And so settle in here and let's read verses 1 through 21 this morning. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that, is, that he has even to subject all things 
to himself. Father, what a, what a mouthful, uh, what a chapter, Lord, what a privilege for us to be able to walk through these verses and consider what they mean and how they apply to our lives today. And so, Father, grant us grace. There's so much here. There's such a depth and richness, Father, that we'll really never attain to in this lifetime. But, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would just give us insight, uh, illumination, understanding, and, uh, Lord, that you would make it very clear to us, Lord, what uh, Paul intended for us to get from this text and, and how our lives should change as a result of what we learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the word religion is a difficult word to define. Uh, technically speaking, religion could be defined as a set of beliefs and practices uh, whereby human beings can establish and maintain a relationship with a divine being or beings. Uh, practically speaking, Religion is something that we as humans developed in order to have a relationship with God or gods. Some of the largest, most well-known religions of the world include Islam and Catholicism and Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism, and I might even just throw in there uh, Satanism. You notice I purposely left Christianity out of that list of world religions because Christianity is uniquely and profoundly different from all the other religions in the world. In fact, I wouldn't even call or categorize Christianity as a religion. I think the difference between Christianity and every every other religion in the world is simply this, that religion is what man has to do in order to have a right relationship with God. Is that fair? That's what religion is. It's what man has to do in order to have a right relationship with God. Christianity, on the other hand, is what God has already done so that man can have a right relationship with him. Huge difference. And ultimately, it's the difference between heaven and hell. You see, religion is all about appeasing God and earning God's approval and ultimately striving to gain some kind of salvation. And it's amazing, really, how far people will go to try to pacify God and pay for their sins or mistakes and failures. Um, I'm sure you've heard stories or read articles about uh, those who crawl for miles on their hands and feet to their place where their hands and their feet are just just bloodied. Uh, Others offer repetitious prayers or chants. Some make annual pilgrimages to sacred sites or they take a vow of poverty or maybe they donate huge sums of money to certain religious organizations. Um, Others participate in special rituals and ceremonies. Some beat themselves with with painful instruments like whips or sticks. Others go to church every Sunday, every time the doors are open. They try to love everybody, be a good person who does good things for others. Some some even dedicate their entire lives to God by becoming a priest or uh, a nun or a monk or a pastor. 
There's something inherently human about having to work for whatever we want in life and then taking credit for whatever we end up earning or achieving. And that's why having a a religion appeals so much to so many people. We, We naturally feel the need to work to earn or achieve salvation. And, and I think that's why Christianity has been misunderstood and maligned from its very beginning because Christians believe that there's nothing, absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Salvation is an undeserved, unmerited gift from God that we receive by placing our faith in the finished work of God's Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross in our place and rose again to show that God has accepted his sacrifice and that God's wrath against man's sin had been appeased and the price for sin was paid once and for all. In other words, the the good news of salvation is that God graciously came to save us because we couldn't save ourselves. And so it makes sense that he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory for our salvation. And any boasting that that we might do should be in what Christ has done for us, not what we've done for him to earn God's favor. True Christians affirm what the Reformers stated way back in the 14 and 1500s, when the gospel needed to be clarified, when the doctrine of salvation was being attacked and, and, and diluted and really destroyed by the church in its day. And so the reformers made this statement that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's work alone, for God's glory alone. That's pretty clear. And that's what true Christians believe. They affirm what the reformers stated. And requiring or adding anything else besides repentance and faith in order to be saved is what's called legalism. Legalism. Jacob, here's your answer. I was joking with him on the way into church today. I said, Jacob, look out for legalism. He looked around like, what are you talking about? I said, I'm just kidding. That's the title of my sermon. And he says, hey, Dad, what is legalism? And I said, that's a great question. And so here you go, Jacob. Here's, there you are. Here's the answer. Legalism is the belief that a person can gain God's approval and earn salvation through human effort. Well, let me say that again. This is an important definition. Legalism is the belief that a person can gain God's approval and earn salvation through human effort or their own effort, whether it's performing rituals or keeping a set of rules or doing a number of good works. That's legalism. And every religion in the world holds to this belief and insists that people have to do certain things in order to be saved. In other words, every religion in the world is legalistic. For example, Catholicism, one of the most popular religions in the world today, teaches that a person is saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So far, so good, right? 
But they also teach that a person is not saved by faith alone, but a person must earn their way to heaven by keeping seven sacraments, which they, they, they consider means of grace or ways to earn God's grace. You need to be baptized shortly after you're born. You need to take communion, the Eucharist, the Mass. Uh, you need to be confirmed, go through a confirmation process. You need to uh, go to confession and make penance for your sins. You need to be involved in the anointing of the sick. When you're sick, you need to be anointed and, 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 uh, and prayed over, and you need to be married. That's part of their, one of the seven sacraments is marriage. And, and, uh, and also, when you're on your deathbed, you need to have a priest come and give you the last rites. And unless you fulfill all these sacraments, then you might have to spend a little extra time in purgatory uh, to, to work out the kinks in your salvation, right? And then maybe someday, because people gave money or prayed for you, you'll get bumped out of purgatory and you'll get to go to heaven. Now, just so you know, I'm not making this up and, or, or not just reading stuff from books. Uh, I'll never forget when I was in high school, I got into a conversation with a Catholic priest. And, and of course, we were, in those days, I had young man's disease and uh, I figured I knew more than anybody else, right? And I thought I was going to set this Catholic priest straight and, you know, help him come to see the error of his ways and, you know, as a high school kid. <laughs> um, but I'll never forget something he said as we were discussing the gospel and what, is it, what, what does God require for someone to be saved? He, he said, you know what? Let me tell you this illustration, and I think it'll help you understand what, what I believe and what the Catholic Church teaches. He said that getting to heaven is like being in a rowboat. And you've got two oars, and the two oars are faith and works. And as you row that rowboat, faith and works, together throughout your life, you'll make it safely to heaven. Put my jaw back up on my face, right? And I thought, that's it. You just described exactly what you believe and what the Catholic Church teaches, which even as a young high school guy, I knew that was heresy. That was deception. That was not true. That was, that was legalism. And, and that's just one example of, of legalism in our modern times, but, but this is not a new problem. In fact, throughout church history, legalism, I think, has posed the greatest threat to the gospel and, and many have sought to guard Christians from being led astray by this insidious uh, heresy or doctrine. And no one was more passionate than the Apostle Paul when it, when it came to safeguarding the church against those who insisted that a person had to do certain things in order to be saved. And in Paul's day, there was a, a group of false teachers called the Judaizers. How many of you ever heard of the Judaizers, okay? You familiar with the Judaizers? Okay, the, the, the Ju Judaizers taught that in order for a person to be saved, they had to be circumcised and also keep all the laws and practice all the rituals and ceremonies prescribed by Moses in the Old Testament. And as Jews, they were Jews, it made sense to them that if, if Gentiles who converted to Judaism had to be circumcised and keep the Old Testament law, which was that's how it worked uh, throughout all the Old Testament. When somebody came, a Gentile came and said, I want to believe in the one true God of Israel. Well, okay, bro, you need to get circumcised and you need to maintain the Jewish law. And that's how you became a believer, if you will. 
or a part of the, the family of God as you, you became a Jew. And so they thought, logically, then, then the same must apply to Gentiles who convert to Christianity. That, that they essentially need to become a Jew in order to be truly saved. Now we know Paul was a Jew who, before he came to know Christ, hated the church and zealously persecuted Christians. Uh, more on that in a moment, but, but then he got radically saved and was appointed by God to bring the good news to, of all people, who? The Gentiles. And so as Paul went out on the heels of Peter and Gentiles started getting saved in the book of Acts, it, it created this, this huge uproar in the church. And, and Peter and Paul had, had to explain this, this new thing to the Jewish leaders of the church. And at first it seemed that the matter was settled, but eventually some of the more strict Jewish believers who opposed Paul's ministry, they showed up in, in his home church in Antioch, uh, or sending church, I should say, and, and they insisted that Gentile Christians had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Well, as you can imagine, both Paul and, and, and Barnabas opposed these men. They got into a big debate with these men who were seeking to impose the, the rules and the practices of Judaism on the, the Gentile Christians as a way uh, to obtain a right standing before God. And this eventually led to what we know as the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And we don't have time to, to look at that, but you might want to make a note of that and maybe look at that later or as you're maybe uh, going over the, the questions uh, that I've provided you uh, today. Um, but the Jerusalem Council was a fascinating um, council. It was a, a meeting of the minds, if you will. It was the kind of the first big council that the church ever had to come together and, and, and sort out an issue. And there's been councils, uh, church councils throughout the centuries where uh, some theological issue came to a head and they had to have a council. They called a council and said, let's sit down and figure this thing out and, and come up with a position, an official position. And so that's what they did in the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. Um, the, the, the apostles and the elders uh, who were in charge of the church in those early years all came together and they heard the arguments on both sides of the issue. And when it was all said and done, they agreed that any Gentiles who God granted repentance and faith did not have to be circumcised or observe the Old Testament law. And they actually composed a letter and they sent it to all the churches that Paul had planted communicating their decision on this matter. Well, as you can imagine, not everyone in that meeting um, liked the outcome. Uh, and so those who opposed the, the results of the Jerusalem Council continued to dog Paul, his trail, and just, just followed him wherever he went and, 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 and sought to undermine his ministry and distort the gospel of grace. And they tried to convince Paul's converts that he, that he hadn't told them everything. Now, Paul's a good guy, and yeah, we, you know, he, he's, I'm sure God used him in your midst, but he really didn't tell you everything you needed to know. You, you, you're missing a very vital part of what it means to be a Christian. And they would say how they, they needed to be circumcised and, and, and follow the law 
the Old Testament law to, in order to not only be saved, but also to be sanctified. And the, the mixing of law and grace caused great confusion in the minds and the hearts of, of Paul's converts and in the churches that he had started. In fact, he wrote his epistle to the churches in Galatia, the region of Galatia, primarily to combat this heretical teaching. And, and by the way, don't, I hope you're not sitting there thinking, oh yeah, this is kind of a boring history lesson and you know, this is not going on today and why would I need to be worried about this and wake me up when it's over. Well, just so you know, we had a, several years back, had a very tragic situation happen uh, in the life of this church regarding this very issue of legalism. That there was a a, a precious couple who came, uh, started coming to the church and just, just, we all fell in love with them and and, uh, they were just sweet and man, they shared their testimony. We're all weeping and how God was so gracious to save them and, and, um, and, and, and they were literally, I mean, I remember this guy come with his legal pad of notes, you know, yellow legal pad, and he would just sit there and just take copy of no, notes of every sermon, every class, every equipping hour, you know, just filling up notebooks like crazy and just so hungry and for the word of God. And, and then we stopped seeing them, and they just kind of disappeared, and we thought, oh, that's kind of strange. What happened? Well, it came to our attention that they had gotten a book. Somebody had given them a book that essentially said what the Judaizers were saying to the Philippians, that, uh, hey, you know what? And, and by the way, I, I read the first part of the book because I wanted to see what, what in the world did they read that just kind of got them off track? Um, what had bewitched them, as Paul said, right, in, in, in Galatians? Well, who's bewitched you? Who's messed with your thinking? Who's messed up your theology? And and, uh, and I read the, the, the introduction of the book, and it's exactly what this guy, the author said. Hey, listen, you know, you've, you probably were raised in church, and this is what you were taught about what it means to be a Christian, but just so you know, all your pastors ha- have not told you the whole story. I was like, really? Kept reading. Well, guess what the rest of the story was? Oh, by the way, you're supposed to be keeping all the Old Testament Jewish laws. And you're not supposed to have leaven in your house and you should be you know, not eating this kinds of meat on certain days of the week and you, should, you need to celebrate these ceremonies and go through these rituals. And, um, and it was really sad because this dear couple was led astray into this legalistic thinking and, and way of living and, and, and relating to God by keeping all these rules and regulations. And so this is not just an old problem. This is something that's lurking uh, outside the doors of this church, trying to get in and trying to uh, deceive you, deceive me, and to, to confuse us. And so we need to understand what's going on here. And, and, and here in this epistle uh, that Paul wrote to, 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 to Philippi, the church in Philippi, he, he warned these beloved believers, about the Judaizers. And he considered these, these legalists a serious threat that, as we're going to see, he didn't just warn them once. He didn't just warn them twice. He warned them three times about the Judaizers. And he also 
use not one or two, but three disparaging images to describe them. And I think this, this threefold indictment of the Judaizers was intended by Paul to ensure that if these enemies of the gospels, uh, gospel ever made it to Philippi, that the church would just send them packing. It's just like, not interested. Don't believe that. That's heresy. Doesn't line up with scripture. And so, maybe just for starters, we should look at verses one through six. Because here Paul explained the difference between false teachers and, I would even say, false believers and true teachers and true believers in order to safeguard the Philippians and I would also say us. Paul wanted to, the Spirit of God wanted to safeguard us from legalism. And so we're going to see the marks of false teachers, false believers. And then we're going to see the marks of true teachers and true believers. But just notice the first verse here, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. He begins this chapter with the word finally, which appears like, oh, he's about to, he's about to wrap up his letter. But then you look and go, well, there's about the same amount left to go <laughs> that we've already looked at. Um, and so this word obviously signifies more of a transition than a conclusion. And some, uh, some commentator mentioned that this was an interrupted conclusion, that he was about to conclude, but then he got interrupted. And as Paul often did, he went on some rabbit trail, but it wasn't just a rabbit, an unnecessary rabbit trail. It was a necessary rabbit trail. And uh, he says it again in verse 8, by the way, finally, chapter 4, verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, dwell on these things. So um, he, he's getting there, but he's got a few more things he, he needs to share. And so uh, since he still had a, a little less than half the letter to go, he's, he's clearly introducing a new subject here. And I think this word could be better translated as maybe furthermore or so then or now then. He says, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Literally, keep on rejoicing. And uh, as we've already learned, this is the, one of the sub-themes, if you will, of, of, uh, uh, of the book of Philippians, that we see the word joy and rejoicing weaved throughout this letter. We've already seen it in chapter 1, uh, in verse 4, in verse 18, in verse 25, in chapter 2, verse 2, and verses 17 and 18, and verses 28 and 29, and now uh, here he says it again. Uh, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he's going to say it in chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Again, he's going to say it in verse 10, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly. We can't miss this. And, and obviously, just like us, the believers in Philippi needed to be reminded over and over again to rejoice no matter what, no matter what was happening in your life. And, and, and let's be honest, too often we allow our circumstances to control our attitude? Or is that just me? We, we get down in the dumps when things don't go our way. And, and so this is the first time, take note of this, that Paul added the little phrase, in the Lord. He's just been saying, hey, I rejoice, or I encourage you to rejoice, and I have great joy. But now he says, rejoice in the Lord which is really uh, key when you understand this concept of rejoicing. It's not just, hey, rejoice. 
Come on, rejoice. Be joyful. No, rejoice in the Lord. And that little prepositional phrase there describes the sphere in which our joy as Christians exists. Our joy should be in the Lord, not in our circumstances. In other words, if our joy is based on what is going on in our lives, our joy is going to be constantly what? Fluctuating and changing because our circumstances are always fluctuating and changing. But if our joy is in the Lord, guess what? Does he ever change? Is he always faithful? Is he always sovereign? Is he always good? Does he always love you? Is he always just and fair and gracious and merciful? Yes, absolutely. And so if our joy is in the Lord, who never changes, then we can remain joyful no matter what happens to us. Nothing should affect our joy. And so Paul is teaching here that it's possible, it's not easy, but it's doable, it's possible to rejoice even when you're facing tragedy or feeling physical pain or dealing with a frustrating situation. That doesn't mean you're, you know, just kind of walking around happy-go-lucky like everything's great. Paul even said in his letter to the Corinthians, he said, I'm sorrowful yet, what? Rejoicing. It's like, how is that possible? Well, you know there's times when you're, you're bummed out, you're sad, and something happened in your life that has made you sad. And it's not a sin to be sad, right? But somehow in that sadness and that sorrow, there needs to be a rejoicing. Sorrowful yet rejoicing. And what makes that possible, the only thing that makes that possible is when we get our focus off of our situation and our pain and our trial and we put it on the Lord and go, oh, oh, yeah, God is good. God is sovereign. God is faithful. And, and yeah, I, I, you know, I don't feel so good right now. In fact, life stinks right now. But you know what? God is good. And God is fair. And God is wise. And God knows what's best. And so I can rejoice even though I'm depressed. <laughs> even though I'm discouraged. Again, Paul was writing from prison and telling those who were not in prison to rejoice. It seems like it should be the other way around, right? Hey, buck up, Paul. It's going to be okay, man. No, Paul was saying, hey, fuck up, guys, it's going to be okay. So he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. It's not a problem to have to repeat myself since I want to make sure that you don't get led astray into legalism. And he may have been referring back to chapter 1, verse 28, where he talks about how they shouldn't be alarmed by their opponent, opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that, and that too from God, for it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So he was referring to these opponents who were, who were causing them to suffer and creating conflict maybe in the church. This might be a reference to that. But he says, hey, it's no trouble to repeat myself. Um, because ultimately this is going to safeguard you. This is going to protect you from legalistic false teachers who, who are trying to twist the truth of the gospel by telling you that, that you have to be circumcised and keep all the rules and rituals that God gave to the nation of Israel. Don't buy into it. And so with that as his introduction, he, he launches into this 
this warning against the Judaizers. And again, he gave them three strong warnings and three graphic descriptions of the Judaizers. Notice the warnings uh, in, in verse 2. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Paul wanted to make sure he got their attention. In other words, be careful, watch out, be on the lookout for these dogs, these evil workers, these people of the false circumcision. So he's, first of all, he says, beware of the dogs, which doesn't sound so bad to our ears since we live in a Western culture where we go to pet stores to look at cute puppies and ask the person to take them out so we can cuddle with them, and the next thing you know, we're bringing them home to live with us, and uh, we buy them food and toys to play with, and we spend lots of money at the vet to keep them healthy and groomed and they become loyal companions. Um, that's kind of what we think of dogs. May, I was thinking it might be better in our vernacular to say, beware of the cats. <laughs> because we all know how evil cats are. That might be a better way to understand this text. But, but we need to understand, in the, in the Eastern culture during Paul's day, dogs were not cuddly, cute, cuddly household pets. They were homeless they were vicious, they were mangy, they were disease-carrying creatures who ran wild in the streets and often in packs, scavenging for food and fighting among themselves and often attacking people. I'll never forget the first time I went to India. I thought of all the times I had heard people in the Bible called dogs. Because in India, man, there's a lot of nasty dogs. And they're just all over the place. And they really can't get rid of them because it might be somebody's uncle or somebody, right? I mean, there's a whole reincarnation thing, seriously, with the Hinduism and don't kill the cow, don't kill the dog, right? Because that might be somebody in their reincarnated state. And so they just deal with these mangy mutts all over the place. And I'll never forget these dogs. And they just were everywhere. And they were, they were you know, they were, they're in all the trash piles just eaten. And it was like, I don't want to cuddle with that thing. And, and, and people, even the Indian people, would just be harsh with these dogs, and they would kick them out of their way, and they would, they would, they would, uh, they would yell at them, and it was like, oh, man, dogs are definitely not liked here in India. And, and neither were they liked in the Bible, because this was a term of derision. It was a term of reproach. In fact, in Revelation twenty-two fifteen, if you remember, when John was describing who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, he said, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. In other words, that's a characterization of unbelievers, the dogs. The Jews refer to Gentiles as dogs. Even Jesus called Gentiles dogs. If you remember in Matthew 15, verse 26, a Canaanite woman came who had a daughter who was demon-possessed and she begged Jesus to heal her. And uh, he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus, that's not very nice, calling this Canaanite woman a dog. But the woman said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. 
And so he was connecting with her. It was ununderstood. That's just the way it was in those days. And so Jesus saw her faith and said, you know what? I like that. I'm going to heal your daughter. And in this passage, Paul turns the tables and he refers to to, to these Jewish false teachers as dogs. I mean, Jews weren't called dogs. The Gentiles were called dogs. Now Paul's saying, no, you're the dogs. And he likened the Judaizers to, to troublemaking, disease-carrying beasts who were prowling around churches and seeking to attack and devour people, and he considered them extremely dangerous. It's like, oh, look at the cute puppy. Let me throw up it. No, don't even get near that thing. It's got rabies. Run. Beware the dogs. Beware of legalism. He goes on. That's not enough. Beware, he says, of the evil workers, which I think, again, was a play on words here. Beware of the evil workers. Well, these guys were doing a whole lot of work. These Judaizers were, were doing all sorts of good works, and they thought they were pleasing God and earning his favor. And, and, and according to Paul, though, what they were doing was actually evil. These false teachers were professing to be true believers, but they were spreading false doctrine and deceiving people that they could earn their way to heaven by doing good works, and what they were ultimately doing is damning their souls to hell. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And so he says, beware of the Dogs, beware of the evil workers and beware of the false circumcision. Literally, that word circumcision is the mutilation. Beware of the, of the mutilation, which again was a sarcastic play on words here to describe what Paul thought of their, their, these guys' warped view of circumcision. In fact, in, in, uh, in Galatians, he even got more graphic. In, in Galatians 5.12, he said this, I wish that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves, emasculate themselves, go all the way. If you're there in Galatians, just turn to Galatians 6. You just have to turn back a few pages even if you're in Philippians. Look at Galatians chapter 6 where Paul just teed up this issue uh, really in the clearest way. In Galatians chapter 6 verse 12, Galatians chapter 6, verse 12, he's wrapping up this letter on, on really legalism. It's all about legalism and not being bewitched by these Judaizers who had gone around to all the churches in the Galatian region and confused a whole bunch of people. Verse 12, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. In other words, they don't want to give up their Judaism like I did, like Paul said. I gave up that. I cut my ties with Judaism, and I got persecuted for it. But they don't want to do that. They want to kind of stay connected with Judaism, kind of play both sides of the the fence, if you will. Uh, For those who are circumcised do not keep the law themselves. In other words, these guys, yeah, they're circumcised, and they're telling you to be circumcised, but not even keeping the law themselves. They desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Like, hey, all right, I got that guy. I convinced him. How many is that for you? Well, I got 43. How about you? Well, I only got 32. Well, you got to work harder, right? Let's, let's keep track of this. But may it never be that I would boast, Paul says, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In other words, it doesn't make a difference whether you've been circumcised or not. It's all about have you been saved? Have you been regenerated? Are you a new creature in Christ? That's all that matters. I think his point here was that the Judaizers had missed the spiritual significance of circumcision. They, they, they failed to understand why God ordained circumcision in the first place. God intended, it to be, God intended circumcision in the Old Testament to be, to be more than, than, than just a surgical act, but a spiritual sign of a transformed heart. It was, a, it was, it was to be a, a physical symbol to the Jews... That all those, and, and, and not just the Jews, all those who became Jews, the proselytes, that their lives had been cleansed, their lives had been changed. It's kind of like baptism. We talk about believers' baptism as not, being, uh, not having anything to do with your salvation. It's simply an outward demonstration of an inward decision or transformation. That's what circumcision was. It was an outward demonstration that you had been transformed on the inside. That was ultimately the point that God had in mind when he thought up circumcision as something that the Jewish people needed to do. Just listen to a couple of verses in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your, fill in the blank, it's not what you think, circumcise your heart. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Jeremiah said this, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And these Judaizers were doing the same thing as the ancient Israelites. They were, they'd been physically circumcised. By the way, God was talking in Deuteronomy 30 and Jeremiah 4. He was talking to people that had already been circumcised. And he's like, guys, you missed the point. It's not about physical circumcision. It's about spiritual circumcision. And so these Judaizers were, while they were physically circumcised, they continued to live according to the flesh. And consequently, because their hearts were never circumcised, their, their hearts were never circumcised, their hearts were never cleansed, their physical circumcision was as meaningless as ritual mutil- mutilation that was performed in pagan religions of that day. Remember the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel were doing all sorts of stuff and and it says that they actually mutilated themselves trying to get Baal to respond to their cries and their pleas. And so Paul's just saying, hey, this is, you know what? Your, your, your circumcision is, is, is as, as meaningless as ritual mutilation performed in pagan religions. But the bigger issue was the Judaizers were not only mutilating themselves, but they were mutilating the gospel. They're mutilating the gospel. And so Paul describes these false teachers and what you could also say were false believers. But then he contrasts that or compares that to true teachers or true 
believers, and he talks about himself, but I think he also included, when he says we, it wasn't just me, it was all of us, me in particular, but also all of us are the true circumstances. So he's talking about himself, but he's also talking about all the the true believers in the church in Philippi. But notice, uh, he says here, for we are the true circumcision. Again, as, as Paul indicated in Galatians 6.15, circumcision is, is synonymous with regeneration. It's about the new, becoming a new creation. It's, a, it's, a, it's about the transformation of the heart. We don't have time to read this, but you could look back at Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29, where Paul lays this out with the Romans and just says, you know what? You're, you're more spiritual as a Gentile Who's been un, who hasn't been circumcised as a believer, you're, you're more spiritual than a Jew who's been circumcised but is not following Christ. And, and, he, and he lays this all out. Colossians 2.11, in him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So again, this whole idea of circumcision, uncircumcision, ultimately was an analogy of the sinfulness of our flesh that needs to be removed. And ultimately, God's plan was to remove that in Christ through regeneration. Notice he goes on to give a, a threefold description of, of his ministry. And, and again, I think the life of every true believer, he says, we're the true circumcision. They, they say, they're the true No, they're false. We're true. Number one, who worship in the Spirit of God. Who worship in the Spirit of God. In other words, we've experienced this inward transformation by uh, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to worship God in spirit and in truth rather than just just going through a bunch of religious exercises or emotions, if you will. In other words, our our relationship with God is not merely based on external things like religious traditions or elaborate rituals or emotional ceremonies performed by robed priests in beautiful cathedrals or temples with ornate furniture. By the way, meeting in a gym isn't necessarily desirable, but it is a great reminder to all of us that it's not about this. It's not about the rituals, the ceremonies, the facility, the, the architecture, the cathedral, the ornate furniture. Sometimes people just got, kind of get wrapped up in all that, and that's kind of what their relationship with the Lord is all about, is, is the ceremony of it all and the liturgy of it all. But we, on the other hand, worship God by the way we live our lives. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And so we worship in the Spirit of God. Secondly, we glory in Christ. We glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, Christ alone is the ground of our boasting. We don't pride ourselves in anything we have accomplished. We don't trust in our 
attainments or achievements to gain God's approval or earn our salvation. Our hope is not in the good works that we have done, but in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. He did what we could not do. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And so therefore, he gets all the glory and credit for our salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.31, Paul said, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. His own testimony was this, 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. I can't take any credit for this. This is all grace. It's that song that we just sang. You know, a good test of whether or not you're boasting or glorying in Christ Jesus is to ask yourself, hypothetically, hypothetical question here, I don't think this is going to happen, but just hypothetically, if, if you were to get to heaven and God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven, how would you answer? If, if God said, why should I let you into heaven, how would you answer that question? And I would simply say, if you're thinking of or maybe would say anything about what you have done as a reason why you should be allowed into heaven, then you don't truly understand the gospel. And it may be that you're not truly saved because you're trusting in something other than Christ alone for your salvation. See, our entrance into heaven is not about what we've done for God but what he's done for us through his son, Jesus. There's only one good work that earns a sinner's way to heaven, and that is the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so Paul says we worship in the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. The flesh represents the, the fallen, unredeemed humanness that we all have. It's, it's, it's who we are outside of, of, outside of or apart from Christ. That's the flesh. And our flesh is powerless to do anything to make ourselves right with God. We can't earn our salvation through human effort. We must simply trust God's grace to save us from our sin. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, "'For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh.'" Nothing, nada. There's nothing good in me. There is no one good, not even one, Romans 3.10. Romans 8, verse 7, the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so true teachers, true believers... Worship in the Spirit of God. They glory in Christ Jesus and they put no confidence in the flesh. And then you got to love verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. (laughs) Paul knew what he was talking about here. This was not hypothetical for Paul. He used to trust in the very same things the Judaizers did to earn God's approval and gain entrance into heaven by faithfully 
fulfilling all the demands, all the duties of Judaism. He's essentially saying, hey, been there, done that. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. In other words, you want to go? Bring it on. Let's talk about it. Let's compare. And Paul goes on here to list all his advantages, all the accomplishments as, as an ex-Pharisee. He sort of like flashes a spiritual business card. Here, here, check it out. Make sure you turn it on the other side. Notice everything here. To, to show what he had inherited or achieved. And it was everything the Judaizers placed their confidence in and, and then some. I mean, he had achieved more than any Jew could ever hope to attain. He had reached the pinnacle of Judaism. And he says, you know what? I can beat you at your own game. Your own prideful, fleshly game. I got you beat, hands down. Just, just quickly, let's run through these. Seven things that he lists here. Four The first four were things he inherited from his parents. The last three things he listed were what he achieved through his own self-effort. So what does he say? Well, I was circumcised the eighth day on the exact day prescribed by the Old Testament law. In other words, I'm not an Ishmaelite who was circumcised after the age of 13 or a Jewish proselyte who was circumcised after his conversion later in life. No, I was a Jew by birth, I am a pure-blooded Jew of the nation of Israel. I'm a member of God's chosen people. You can, you can trace my heritage all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And oh, by the way, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which was the elite tribe, held a special place in in, in, in the minds of the other Israelites and even in, I think, in the mind of God, Benjamin was the only one of Jacob's 12 sons born in the promised land. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin gave Israel its first king, Saul, after whom Paul was obviously named. Uh, Benjamin was the only tribe that remained loyal to the house of David when the kingdom was divided after the death of Solomon and the 10 tribes went north and Judah and Benjamin stayed south and so Benjamin stayed loyal. So he was a tribe of, of Benjamin. And he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which meant that rather than adopting the Greek culture, the language, the customs, uh, even though he was born and raised in a Greek city, the Paul of Tarsus, right, uh, he maintained the language and customs of the Jews. Sort of like Orthodox Jews, you've seen these, I'm sure. Uh, these guys, um, if you've been to Israel or even seen videos of Israel, the guys at the Wailing Wall, or even if you've been to New York City, you'll see them there, a heavy population of, of Orthodox Jews in New York City. But you, you, you notice them because they got the black hat and they've got the black suit and the white shirt and they got the long, dangly, curly, cue uh, beard thing because they don't cut, they don't trim the edges of their beard like it says in the Old Testament. And, and, and they have this box strapped to their forehead. You're like, what is that? Right? And, uh, you know, and they got these things wrapped around their forearms. These are the phylacteries. These are the, the verses of Scripture, the Torah, put on their minds and their arms, taking literally what God said to have this on your mind at all times. They always have their, a copy of their Hebrew Bible. They read Hebrew even today. These are the Orthodox Jews. Paul saying, hey, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. 
And as to the law, a Pharisee. Which, by the way, Pharisee translated means the separated ones. They were the the strictest sect of the Jews that remained true to the law of Moses. And um, they were against theological liberalism like the, the Sadducees, man, they just went off the rails and they stopped believing in the resurrection and, and, and then you got the common folk, man, they're just a mess and, and they're living, there's moral laxity in the, in the majority of, of Jewish people's lives and no, but we're the purists, we're the holy ones. And in fact, he was educated, Paul was educated by Gamaliel who was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the most respected teacher of the Pharisee party. And Paul was a personal disciple of Gamaliel. Acts 26, 4, Paul says, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. He goes on, asks the zeal of persecutor of the church. We know, as was already mentioned, Paul was a fanatic who saw Christianity as a threat to Judaism. And he sincerely believed that he was serving God by killing Christians and, and seeking to destroy the church, that that honored the Lord. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, he said, You have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. In other words, Paul was the man. He was the head of the class. He was leading the charge for Judaism. And then finally, he says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Not perfect. Paul wasn't saying he was perfect, that he never sinned. In fact, you just have to read Romans 7. And he talked about how the law continually exposed his sin. And it drove him crazy. But if he violated, or when he violated any part of the law, he was careful to bring the necessary sacrifices to atone for his sin and to to regain his righteousness before God and He had been meticulous about keeping the Mosaic law along with all the minute details that the Pharisees had added to the law. And so based on everything Paul had inherited and and achieved from a a Jewish perspective, I mean, he was a shoe-in for heaven. I mean, if anyone could have received or earned salvation by his own self-effort, it would have been Paul. I mean, this... This was an impressive spiritual resume. He was a a spiritual superman. But then he met his kryptonite. The risen Lord Jesus Christ. He came face to face with him. Well, on his way to arrest Christians in the city of Damascus and all the confidence that he had placed in himself for so many years was completely shattered. And that must have been an extremely humbling moment for for this proud, self-righteous Pharisee when he had to admit that all his good works, 
everything he'd ever done, all that he ever accomplished, all that he inherited was nothing but filthy rags in God's eyes. Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousness is as, our righteousness is as filthy rags. And he realized that all the, the things that he was priding himself in and trusting in to earn righteousness on his own amounted to nothing, nothing compared to the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. That's what he says in verse 7. We'll have to wait till next time to look at this. But whatever things were, to gain, were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Can you relate to this testimony? Have you come to the place where you realize, you realize that all your religious activity and personal achievements cannot and will not save you? Do you admit that there's nothing that you can do in and of yourself to gain God's approval or to earn your way to heaven? Listen, you may have come today thinking, I'm on my way to heaven because I'm, I'm being raised in a good Christian home and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a relatively good person and, and you know, I'm pretty sure that when it's all said and done that my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad deeds. And we all know that God judges on a curve and he has a big scale up there, right? And so I'm good. And so I'm good. I would challenge you today to crumple up that religious resume that you've been carrying around maybe proudly in your front pocket waiting for the day when you can hand that to the Lord and say, you're going to be real happy that I'm here because of all that I've done. Crumple that thing up and humbly confess to God that you're a sinner who doesn't deserve to go to heaven because you lack the righteousness in and of yourself that he requires of you to get to heaven. And the only way to get it is to ask him to credit Christ's righteousness to your account solely based on your faith in what he did for you on the cross. That's the gospel of grace. Father, we're thankful for this warning against legalism and Father, we are aware that this is not just some ancient problem, some ancient heresy. This is something that we need to be on guard against even today, Lord, as it just seems like yesterday that that precious couple got plucked out of this fellowship by modern-day Judaizers. And it's so sad to think about. And I pray that you would safeguard this flock through this text, that if anyone tries to convince them that they need to do something else or more in order to be saved, that they would just show them the door, tell them to move on. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is trusting in themselves, relying on their religious activity to somehow gain your favor and earn their way to heaven, 
that they would recognize that they need to repent of their good deeds and recognize that they can never do enough good things to be righteous enough for you to accept them into heaven. And that's why Jesus had to come. And that they would embrace Christ alone and trust in his work alone for their salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.